March 30th, it was announced that the UK would accede to the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. My name is Ross Nugent, a member of the Trade and Manufacturing Practice here at Global Council, and I'm joined by two GC senior advisors who are extraordinarily well-placed to help us unpack this. The first is Tiffany MacDonald, a former Australian diplomat with 20 years experience in the field covering the UK, South Korea, Indonesia, and most recently as High Commissioner to Brunei. We're also joined by Dr. Ankyon Ming, who is a former Malaysian Deputy Minister of International Trade and Industry, currently serving also as a professor of PPE at Taylor's University in Malaysia. So we want to discuss what the CPTPP is, what it's not, and that's important. We want to discuss what it means for the UK, both the risk and the upside, what the political ratification process might look like, because of course that is essential, and also the politics of the CPTPP, because of course they don't go away. In fact, they are amplified by the UK joining. So starting with you, Tiffany, and of course, Kamming, please do come in here. What is the CPTPP and how does it differ from the Trans-Pacific Partnership that some of our clients and prospective clients might have heard about? Thank you, Ross, and, and Kianmin, a pleasure to be here with both of you. And hello to everyone listening. Whilst I bring 20 years diplomatic experience, I must say that all the comments that I will express today are entirely my own. Ross, congratulations on pronouncing the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership acronym so easily, the CPTPP. It is a trade bloc that's populated by about half a billion people with a joint gross domestic product of around £9 trillion in 2021. So that's an enormous, enormous set of markets and market access opportunities. For those that haven't covered it as closely as we have, there are currently 11 Pacific Rim nations that members are Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. And as you've mentioned, the UK has just announced its final negotiations with those members. So it will become the 12th member. It's generally viewed as a really high quality modern trade agreement that gives greater market access and a pledge to eliminate or reduce import charges or tariffs. There are some domestic areas that are sensitive and have been protected, but broadly it's considered an extremely high quality, ambitious free trade agreement that the the members have signed on to. What it's not is an agreement that has the US as part of it. There are 22 provisions that the US was in favour of, but was generally opposed by a number of the other signatories, such as intellectual property rights, like longer longer copyright terms, automatic patent extensions, and some separate protections for new technologies. There were also some investment chapter modifications uh, and implementation timelines that have been parked and some labour and environmental rules. These provisions are still there. They can be reinstated, leaving the door open for the US to join, but the CPTPP membership haven't signed on to those those provisions. Okay, so that's a major difference then, is, is the absence of the United States and, and those provisions that the US insisted on during the Obama administration, particularly pertaining to intellectual property, which are much higher than some of the standards you see in the region. Uh, and of course, that, that marks the distinction between the TPP and the CPTPP. So let's reflect first, I think, on, on the UK. How is it that this benefits the UK materially, geostrategically? Uh, Tiffany Kianming, this is one for both of you. Where does the UK stand to benefit here? Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, thanks, Stephanie and uh, also Ross. 
Uh, I think from sort of like the nuts and bolts of just trading and goods, the expansion of EFTA by the UK to Malaysia and Brunei means that there are now two additional countries that have free trade agreements with the UK that did not have an FTA before the signing of the CPTPP. So this this will benefit both countries. Uh, I think Malaysia will be able to enjoy cheaper whiskey, as far as you know, I've seen from from the UK and also some manufactured goods, including automotives. And then uh, Malaysia's exports uh, to the UK, including electronic items, be uh, you know one of the uh, market access uh, positives for Malaysia as well. But more than that. I think the fact that the UK is now part and parcel of the CPTPP conversations means that in the region, in, in the Asia-Pacific region, in Southeast Asia, uh, we see the UK as an important player once again, not just in terms of trade in good and goods and services, but in many of the following discussions that the committee, the commission on the CPTPP will have in terms of implementing some of the high-quality chapters in this free trade agreement, such as SMEs, business facilitation and development, financial services, labor and environment. And uh, it's important, I think, for a, for a free and open trading country like the UK to be part of this conversation. Yeah, I agree. And if I could just pick up on some of those those points, I think the UK is one of the world's largest services providers and services provide so much to towards the UK's economic output, something like 1.8 trillion pounds to its output and also 82% of employment in the UK is derived from services. And the CPTPP is considered very, very ambitious when it comes to services provision. So it's going to open up a whole range of services opportunities for the UK into the CPTPP markets. I think also another thing that the UK stands to, to benefit from is around investments and the sort of the opportunities that this will provide for outbound investors from, from the UK into the CPTPP markets and the types of protections and guarantees for fair treatment that they'll, they'll be able to avail themselves to. And then the final point that I just add is also around the, the supply chain benefits. So there are in the CPTPP these cumulative provisions, rules of origin provisions that enable enable CPTPP members to tick the so-called rules of origin box so long as 70% of the components come from any of the participants' countries, which really gives, I think, great benefit for diversification of, of supply chains and makes it easier for companies to buy and use raw materials from across the blocks. And, and we hear so much at the moment around diversification and supply chain certainty that I think that the UK will certainly benefit from from those aspects of the CPTPP as well. Okay, so on that kind of accumulation point, I guess in practice that means, say, a UK car manufacturer could source car parts from Japan uh, and have those inputs count toward local content requirements if you're exporting them to Mexico, for example, or Canada. I think also another key point here, and again, returning to the absence of the United States, is on intellectual property. The, the UK did not push to have the suspended IP provisions reinstated during its accession. Of course, that was probably a high bar to clear anyway and would have expended an awful lot of political capital, but it's notable. And also on IP, it seems as though the UK secured a carve-out. So there was a concern that CPTPP would be irreconcilable with the UK's European commitments on intellectual property under the European Patent Convention. 
we ha- haven't seen the side yet or let and of course we haven't seen the legal text but it does look like the UK secured a carve out there so it won't have to diverge from its European commitments. I think moving on we might look at perhaps where some of the complaints are coming from. Of course it hasn't been universally welcomed here in the UK. I think broadly there's been limited backlash but of course there have been those who have tried to flag perhaps compatibility issues or potentially rejoining the European Union or the complaints about the real economic contribution that CPTPP will actually make. What would you have to say about that Tiffany? Well I think it there has been quite a lot of debate we've seen that in the House of Commons in the UK some criticism about what, what will the British government and the exporters uh, gain from, from membership and, and the, the, cr- the flip of that is what, at what expense for the domestic, domestic in- industry and, and sectors and producers. I think that there's a widely used figure comes from British government's own forecasting that the CPTPP in its current form will contribute 0.08% to UK's GDP between now and 2035. But then there are some questions about whether or not that's a, a reliable figure in terms of forecasting what the opportunity is. And I think that's where the, where the conversation is positioning in, in the UK is, is looking not at the, that figure as, as, as a, a forecast, but looking at that as a model that used data from 2014 and that doesn't necessarily take into account the opportunities that will be derived from the CPTPP or from the, the growth in membership of the bloc for those that have applied. Kim Ming, did you have any other reflections? Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit on, on the cost-benefit analysis, which most countries do as a part of you know evaluating yeah, the, the overall outcomes uh, associated with free trade agreements and Malaysia and other countries in the CPTPP have done this. And I would like to say that it is very hard to estimate the long-term potential benefits. So for example, how would you measure uh, the impact of a potential loss in investment? You know, and an automaker decides not to invest in the UK, but in another country because of a lack of uh, free trade agreement access. Similarly, if let's say, you know, the UK, the automotive sector were made much more competitive because it's able to source cheaper spare parts from uh, countries like Malaysia, Mexico, and Japan as a result of its entry into the CPTPP, you know, that usually doesn't figure into the cost-benefit analysis. So, you know, I would take, you know, very cautious approach in terms of these uh, estimated GDP contribution factors. Okay, and how would you say coming reaction has been in the region to UK accession? Would you say it's been broadly, it's been broadly welcomed, it's been broadly welcomed by, by the existing members or has there been some skepticism in some sectors? I think by and large, almost all of the member, member countries in the CPTPP have issued uh, statements of welcome, you know, uh, with regards to the UK accession into the CPTPP. And by and large, I think people who are looking for export opportunities into the, U- into the UK as well as looking for investment opportunities by UK companies, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, are looking at this as a positive sign that it can reinvigorate UK engagement from trade as well as investment perspective in the different sectors that the UK is strong in, not just in the services sector, which we know in terms of financial services, but also in terms of automotive uh, manufacturing, in terms of medical equipment manufacturing, both of which have... uh, UK companies have niche, you know, presence uh, in the region at the moment. 
Okay. So what I'm what I'm hearing is that this is really an investment in the CPTPP's potential future expansion. And so that's what I'm kind of hearing from you guys is that this is really an investment in, in the block's potential. Would that be right, Tiffany? Yeah, I think that's right. And it definitely also being positioned as an in addition to the the UK's relationship with the European Union. But, but Ross, maybe I can get you to um to reflect on on this this point that that the UK's accession to the CPTPP will be an impediment or dilute the the UK's ability to reintegrate if that ever were to happen with with the EU uh, or put another way that this is being seen as an either or scenario well it's a very good question because of course it was a point raised by members of the british conservative party before the uk's accession was announced so they suggested that joining cptpp would make it near impossible for the uk to ever reintegrate with the european union even though of course that conversation isn't even taking place in the uk at the moment i think that's not true so cptpp accession simply won't close the door on reintegration with the eu but of course in the long run as with any agreement of this size, it does create trade-offs, right? So unlike the UK's recent FTAs with Australia, New Zealand, of course, the UK can credibly claim that it couldn't have secured CPTPP membership from, of course, within the European Union. At the end of the day, it won't close the door to rejoin the single market, for example. But of course, the UK would have to leave the CPTPP in exchange. So it really will be choosing one or the other. They are mutually exclusive. So it's not a case of the UK never being able to rejoin the single market or customs union because of course they apply an external tariff it's saying no this is about uh, the uk picking and choosing and saying that for now cptpp works for us if the political weather in the uk were to change and at the moment it doesn't show many signs of changing really it's been judged politically inexpedient by certainly the conservative party and definitely the labor party to even discuss reintegration with the european union but of course it's not impossible in the 10 to 15 year horizon at that point, yes, the UK might have to decide between CPTPP and the UK, but no, it's it's certainly not a block. I just, just wanted to highlight, just wanted to highlight the fact that quite a number of CPTPP countries also have free trade agreements with the European Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, South Korea, Indian Community. You know, so it, it's definitely not an either-or situation, as we've seen. Countries like Vietnam, they have foot in the CPTPP door. They also have an existing EU, EU FTA with the European Union, albeit not one that's uh, at the, that high level of a quality compared to the CPTPP at the moment. And then the other criticism that gets raised uh, is around the food membership of the CPTPP will mean that the UK will have to compromise on its own food standards, import or compromise on its own environmental protections and, and the like. My understanding is that that's just not the case, but Kyungming or Ross, do you have any other perspectives on that? With regards to SPS standards or, you know, the, the, the food and health standards, uh, each country still retains their own right. For example, in Malaysia, the halal certification process is one that's very important, you know, because of access not just to the Muslim market in Malaysia, but also to other countries. So, you know, Malaysia does keep still keep control of, of those standards and I think it will be the same in UK and other countries as well uh, where I think there can be more value added in terms of discussion is in other areas of commonality or common standards uh, such as uh, digital commerce e-commerce and also perhaps uh, certain 
uh, labor and environmental standards, which can be pushed up and improved as a result of the establishment of different committees within the commission of the uh, CPTPP. Okay, I think just to come in on that, I mean, it also seems that the UK has secured protections and carve-outs for, say, geographic indicators and on, on food and animal health standards on SPS. Um, so, of course, you look at existing members. You look at Australia, of course, Tiffany, and Canada, Mexico. They also have protections in there for Canadian rye whiskey, for example, or tequila even. And the UK will, will have similar protections, I imagine. It's widely expected that they will have similar protections for their geographic indicators to protect their kind of really novel products that are really specific to the UK. And likewise, on food and animal health standards, it does appear that uh, the UK resisted Canadian demands for it to liberalise its regulations on hormone-treated beef. That was an issue that became a sticking point towards the end of the negotiation, and Canada agreed really to, to decouple that demand from CPTPP and pursue that in the bilateral channel, which of course is ongoing at the moment. I think perhaps also interesting to look at ratification. So of course, announced that the UK will exceed but of course, there's a ratification process that follows. And Kian Ming, you'll be intimately familiar with this, given how, how recently Malaysia has, has gone through this process. Can you shed light on what, it's, what, what that looks like on the kind of existing CPTPP member side? And perhaps Tiffany and I can shed light on what the UK may do in that regard. Yeah, so for the Malaysian experience, as well as some of the other countries in the region, there needed to be domestic legislation to be passed in areas such as uh, trademarks, even though the intellectual, some of the intellectual property segments have been suspended, but there is still an intellectual property chapter in the CPTPP. So certain trademark laws uh, were changed in Malaysia, certain laws with regards to employment of human resource, and also some you know, more limited environmental laws were amended to reach you know, the high standards that the CPTPP requires. That process you know, took about two years in Malaysia. I think it could have been shorter if not for COVID and some political you know, uh, turbulence uh, in, in Malaysia. But as far as I can read, the UK should take shorter time, probably within a year in terms of ratification. And once the, the instruments are deposited to you know, the CPTPP you know, secretariat, which is uh, on a rotating basis now, then uh, it, will come, it will come into force, if I'm not mistaken, 30 days after the submission. Okay, well, that is certainly my impression as well, I think. But one key thing to consider here, one thing, of course, we flag for clients and, and prospective clients is that, yes, completely agree, Kiang that that the UK will could certainly ratify this before the next general election in the next year. But if it doesn't, if it are open to potentially a Labour government, it seems likely in the UK that the British Labour Party uh, will win, not certain, but likely leaves that are open to them ratifying the agreement and following through. And of course, we know that the Labour Party takes issue in particular with investor-state dispute settlement. And despite, of course, some carve-outs and side letters, which may exempt the UK from that between some CPTPP partners, ISDS will feature, it will be in there, and that could be a ground on which the Labour Party reconsiders or at least pauses rat ratification of the CPTPP. What would you say about that, Kiaming? Do you think, how, how much has ISDS featured in the ratification processes across the region? Yeah, it was definitely an issue in Malaysia. And the challenge that we faced in 2018 was that uh, we had already passed the window whereby we could renegotiate the terms and conditions of the CPTPP to include side letters on ISDS, which the New Zealand as well as the Australian government 
were able to do uh, you know, shortly after their own uh, general elections. My own sense is that if the, you know, if the elections are held later, it, the other member countries may not be so receptive towards having additional side letters put into this agreement by the UK, number one. And number two, it may not be in the interest of UK companies actually to have these ISDS side letters because uh, as, as a country and uh, many companies in the UK with many outbound investments, this is actually a good way for uh, UK companies to be protected from an investor protection standpoint. So, you know, there may be rooms for discussion after the general election with regards to some of these uh, thornier issues with regards to our ISDS. And I think it's worth pausing here also just to reflect on the fact that we haven't seen the UK's text as yet. So we haven't seen what has been agreed. We understand that... that Probably we'll see it around the middle of middle of this year. It'll be laid before Parliament. And then, of course, there is a domestic process within the UK that sits under the Constitutional Reform and Governance, Governance Act that sets out the pathway for, for the CPTPP text to be considered and, and debated. And also the Trade and Agriculture Commission, Commission will have a look have a look at it. So there's still there's still a bit of domestic process that needs to play out in the in the UK, and no doubt we'll see far more debate domestically about the the pros and cons of of the the agreement. But I think that the, we've touched on already some really interesting aspects of of the domestic discussion here and and where the potential pressure pressure points are. Mm. We also have touched on. The idea that this is a down payment in on a broader, a broader grouping and a broader block of of economies that may sign up to the CPTPP. Should we reflect on that? Because there 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 are there is quite a lot of discussion about the the pipeline of prospective members. Ross, we've already touched on the idea that the US doesn't look like it's it's one of them. But can Min, you want to? Just touch on what the what the the pipeline of prospective members looks like, and and some questions around around that membership process. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, uh, China, Taiwan, South Korea. I, I think are some of the bigger trading nations that have applied uh, to join the CPTPP, and we also have smaller countries in South and Central America, namely Costa Rica, Honduras. Uh, sorry, Costa Rica, Uruguay. Has, has also applied to uh, join. I think what, what is, sorry, Costa Rica, Ecuador, and Uruguay. I think what, what should be obvious is, you know, China and Taiwan, for different reasons, it's not likely to be accepted by, by, a, con, by a consensus agreement among all the member parties within the CPTPP. Uh, China, because I think, you know, of uh, geopolitical reasons, and also for the fact that China has traditionally wanted to adopt a more gradualist approach uh, towards increasing their commitments to FTAs. And uh, of course, uh, we know that Taiwan uh, will uh, receive uh, also many objections from you know, countries that may not want to aggravate its relationship with, with uh, China. So you know, I, I would think that South Korea is the most likely uh, country to be accepted into the accession process. And 
I think there is political will under the new president to do so. With regards to the other three countries, Ecuador, Costa Rica, and Uruguay, I think there's, there's no big political impediments, but I think the attractiveness of the individual markets, given their size, may not be something that will be prioritized uh, by the existing commission members. I think it's actually more important for the CPTPP member countries to focus on implementing uh, the different chapters and commitments that are, that are spelled out in this uh, FTA, uh, rather than to be distracted by you know, the possibility of new entrants, because this is what will make the CPTPP actualize the high, high quality dimension of its, you know, of its uh, characteristics and nature. And I think this is something that has been you know, a little bit slow to progress uh, since uh, 2018 because of COVID and also because of other you know, factors. I think that's absolutely right. I think, Tiffany, you're absolutely right as well that the prospect of the U.S. rejoining is pretty slim. I think the U.S. appetite for FTAs or market liberalization is, is pretty low across the board. It wouldn't be unique by any means to CPTPP. But of course, it will particularly apply to the low-wage economies, which the U.K. Is, or the U.S. Or rather is very sensitive to, of course, particularly in, in some really important political constituencies there. I think I completely agree with you, Ming, and, and just maybe to shed light some more on, on, on the UK's positioning vis-a-vis China's application, I think it's, it's probably likely that the UK will come down on the side of, of the likes of Japan, being somewhat sceptical of China's application and, and less in the camp of Vietnam and Singapore, which have, which have signaled that they might be open to, to Chinese accession. I think that is the main point. I think, again, it, it's, it's for the reasons you stated, Ming. It, it's for a you know, geopolitical reasons. And of course, there is, while the US is outside the tent, they certainly play a role in the sense that the UK may be, may be encouraged by the United States not to proceed with uh, Chinese application. Of course, doing that would be very difficult to also proceed with Taiwan's. And of course, also it is to maintain the relatively high standards of the CPTPP. That is how the British government is selling it here. This is a high standard agreement and that by admitting China, you may be potentially putting some of those standards at risk given the lack of confidence that China will undertake the requisite reform. My, my personal view is anything that contributes to free trade and anything that lifts, lifts standards and, and the CPTPP does both is, is welcome in the international community. I think that at a time where free trade is under such pressure and the globalisation is itself under, under pressure that we, we should be supportive of the CPTPP membership uh, continuing to expand and, and in, in a way that doesn't dilute its, uh, its high, high standard, high quality mantle. Can I ask, Ross, another, another, another dimension to the UK CPTPP membership is around the Windsor framework, mm. something closer to your native homeland. Yeah. Um, I have heard that the conclusion of the Windsor framework was received positively by CPTPP members. It, it looked like it was reassuring to members that the UK had uh, reached a, a sort of finalisation of its Brexit processes. Obviously, there's some still some wobbles around around that. But can you just talk to us a little bit about how, how the Windsor framework might interact with the CPTPP? And there have been some criticisms that Actually, the CPTPP makes it more difficult um, to, to land the Windsor framework. Well, I think the first point on that is that it, it really doesn't uh, in any really major material way. Um, I think that the relevance of the Windsor framework to the UK CPTPP accession is 
probably overstated. I've also seen commentary that suggested that there was a link between the two and that perhaps the Windsor framework unlocked CPTPP accession. I think that's probably untrue. I think it was probably a moderate, a moderate uh, tailwind for the UK. Uh, it helps somewhat. Of course, when you have an open trade dispute at one of the world's largest trading blocks, it is helpful to settle that before you join a new one. Um, but I, I don't think that it was instrumental or decisive in any way. Uh, I think that perhaps some CPTPP members may have used the open question of the what once what was known as the Northern Ireland Protocol as leverage toward the latter half of the negotiations. But again, I think that any commentary that suggests that there was a real link between those two things, I think, is probably overstating it a little bit. Would you agree with that, Kianming? Would you say that the the Windsor framework played any kind of decisive role? in the UK's admittance to CPTPP? Uh, at least in this part of the world, uh, that even though we were aware of the challenges uh, with regards to uh, the border situation, um, uh, but it was not something that was uh, discussed either publicly or privately with regards to CPTPP accession. Yeah, exactly that. I think that that is the main point there. I think that sometimes, you know, those of us who, who follow trade policy quite closely tend to draw links between tangentially related subjects, and that might have been an example of that, so I completely agree with that. Um, I think one last piece, and we, we always like to finish these podcasts by coming back to advice for clients, because of course that's who we're here to, to support, uh, and of course again, those of you who might be interested in becoming clients. Um, so Tiffany, coming, what, what are we saying to clients about CPTPP? What advice are we giving here? The advice that I, I would be giving to clients is to, to, to be looking out for the, the final text and the side letters uh, in middle of the year when the UK tables them uh, so that we can go through and look at where the, where the risks are but, but also where the opportunities are. Uh, as we opened this discussion, the CPTPP uh, provides, will provide the UK uh, investors, exporters, manufacturers, agriculture, uh, service providers with great opportunities. And I think that that's, um, that's where I would be um, looking to, to, to work, work with our clients is how can we, how can we make sure that those opportunities are, are realized um, in the best possible way for them. And coming. Yeah, I, I think the devil is always in the detail with regards to uh, these free trade agreements, especially one uh, that has uh, 30 chapters, you know, such as the CPTPP. Uh, I would say that many companies uh, would be helped uh, if, let's say, uh, certain directions or um, advice could be given to them in terms of the, the specific uh, chapters that could impact and provide opportunities for their individual businesses. Uh, and by that, I mean the provisions and obligations in chapters which have not been implemented yet. Uh, so, for example, the Commission established uh, a committee on e-commerce uh, at uh, one of the recent Commission meetings. Uh, and this is to ensure that the implementation of the uh, obligations in the e-commerce chapter of the CPTPP are fulfilled. Uh, and... You know, there have been examples given uh, by uh, certain research organizations, uh, you know, that have been supported by some of the global uh, tech companies uh, to highlight the fact that there have been new regulations being passed in CPTPP member countries, which are contrary to the obligations within uh, the CPTPP 
uh, chapter on e-commerce. So for example, uh, you know, more restrictions on things like data localization. And all these issues, I think, are important for individual member countries uh, and for companies that are based in the UK that uh, wants to see greater uh, liberalization and opportunities in uh, financial services, in e-commerce, in uh, the digital economy. Uh, you know, this is where uh, Global Council, uh, through the network of advisors uh, that we have, would be able to uh, facilitate discussions and bring up these issues in a more substantive manner. Uh, uh, through different channels. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, another thing we have to be telling clients is, you know, look at the politics of the United Kingdom. You know, again, we mentioned it here today, but it it is important. And, you know, as we said, in just because you agree to, to join a block and the block agrees to have you, doesn't mean the story ends there. So let's look at the Labour Party's positioning. Uh, and of course, that party has promised to reassert the centricity of Europe in, in, in British uh, foreign and trade policy, uh, and that may mean perhaps some reconsiderations of its of its presence in the region, or may or may not. But it's worth looking at. And and my final my final contribution to to that that thought is also to be watching the Indo Pacific Economic Framework and how that's developing and what what impact that may have on uh, the 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 interests and how it sits uh, with the CPTPP. Uh, re requirements also perhaps something for us to pick right. up on another a, another podcast. Another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tiffany, and thank you so much, Cam Ming. Of course, we've been dialing in across time zones here today, uh, which of course we really, really appreciate from you guys. As always, if you listening or your business uh, has an investment that's exposed to the CPTPP or could benefit or potentially be put at risk by UK accession to the CPTPP please don't hesitate to get in touch. That's what we're here to do to help. You can find the contact details for Kianming, Tiffany and myself and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you very, very much for listening.